SBS Radio. SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Bertrand Tungandaming, I am Bertrand Tungandami, and I'm very happy to be with you this Monday, September 12. Now, coming up in your program today, we have a conversation with Uncle Gary Williams, a conversation recorded ahead of Antidote 2022, Sydney Opera House's Festival of Ideas, Art and Change. A key theme explored during the festival over the weekend was preserving endangered languages and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uncle Gary spoke at the event, sharing his experience revitalizing endangered languages. Also on NITV Radio, we continue our conversation with Frances Bell Parker, whose artwork, Aboriginal Art and Storytelling, is the first major public art project to be presented on the 36-kilometer Northern Beaches Coastal Walk in Sydney. And from the newsroom, we share a report on the proclamation of King Charles III as King of Australia over the weekend in a ceremony that featured for the first time an acknowledgement of country. All these stories and many more, including the very best of Indigenous music, coming to you on NITV Radio right after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, King Charles III proclaimed King of Australia amid military pomp and indigenous ceremony. The Prime Minister promises extra sitting days to be scheduled to make up for the cancellation of Parliament. And the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II arrives in Edinburgh. King Charles III has been officially proclaimed as the ruling monarch of Australia by Governor-General David Harley. The ceremony took place at Canberra's Parliament House, followed by a 21-gun salute. Governor-General David Harley made the official proclamation after convening with Australia's Executive Council. Because of the death of our blessed and glorious Queen Elizabeth II, the Crown has solely and rightfully come to Prince Charles Philip Arthur George. We, therefore, General the Honourable David Hurley, AC, DSC, retired, Governor-General of the Commonwealth of Australia, and members of the Federal Executive Council do now proclaim Prince Charles Philip Arthur George to be King Charles III, by grace of God, King of Australia and his realms and territories. The service opened with a welcome to country from Nanoal elder Auntie Violet Sheridan, who paid her respects to the passing of the monarch. 
No matter what your views, Queen Elizabeth lived a life of service and she was also a loving wife, mother, grandmother and great-grandmother. King Charles III takes over from his mother and we know he will be thoughtful in his rule. Similar ceremonies have been held in each Australian state and territory. Australia's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom attended a reception with King Charles and other Commonwealth High Commissioners. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says extra seating days will be scheduled before last before late October to make up for the cancellation of Parliament. Politicians were due to be in Canberra this week with the government due to introduce legislation for the establishment of a federal anti-corruption monitoring service, but protocol dictates that Parliament be suspended for 15 days after the death of the Queen. Speaking to Channel 7, the Prime Minister also defended the decision to declare a national public holiday on the 22nd of September to mark Queen Elizabeth's passing, saying the late monarch had deep connections with communities all around Australia. She was someone who didn't just go to Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, she went to regional communities, remote communities, and had uh, an engagement with them. And, and that's why I think uh, it is appropriate uh, that local communities organise commemorative events as well as the national mm. memorial service that will take place at 11am on Thursday the 22nd. Queen Elizabeth II's coffin has arrived in Scotland's capital of Edinburgh as of, late, as of the late monarch's journey from Balmoral to London. The coffin will spend the day in Edinburgh before being taken to London where the Queen will be laid to rest with a state funeral to take place on September 19 at Westminster Abbey. The Dean of Westminster, David Hoyle, who will officiate the service, says the Abbey was incredibly significant to Queen Elizabeth as it's the location where she married her husband, Prince Philip, in 1947 and was also the site of her coronation in 1953. I think because in this building she took two sets of promises that really defined her life. We all know that she understood her role as sovereign to be lifelong uh, and that's because she, she understood the oath of the coronation to mean just that. And my word, she, she lived that out. She ran the race. We also know that her marriage to the Duke of Edinburgh was a hugely significant and stable point in a very demanding life. So those two things shaped her life. Even as he mourns his late mother, King Charles III has held a series of meetings with officials from around the Commonwealth at Buckingham Palace. During his second day in London since ascending to the throne, the new king met with Patricia Scotland, the Secretary-General of the Commonwealth, as well as High Commissioners from the 14 Commonwealth countries, which still regard the monarch as their head of state. Many in those nations are grappling with both affection for the Queen and lingering bitterness over their colonial legacies, which ranged from slavery to corporal punishment in African schools to looted artifacts held in British cultural institutions. Antigua and Barbuda will call a referendum on forming a republic after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Prime Minister Gaston Brown made the announcement minutes after signing a document that confirmed Charles III as king, saying he wanted to hold the vote within three years. The Caribbean country is one of 14 nations who have retained the British monarch as their head of state. Prime Minister Brown told ITV the move is not a malicious one. 
This is not an act of hostility or any difference between Antigua and Barbuda and the monarchy, but it is uh, the final step, as I said before, to complete um, that circle of independence um, to ensure that we are truly a sovereign uh, nation. New research reveals 50 million people around the world were living in modern-day slavery in 2021. The latest Global Estimates of Modern Slavery report finds 28 million people were in forced labor, while 22 million were trapped in forced marriages. That number has grown in the past decade, with 10 million more people in modern slavery late last year late last year than in 2016. The report finds migrant workers are more than three times more likely to be in forced labor than non-migrant adult workers, with women and children also remaining disproportionately vulnerable. The United States is commemorating the 21st anniversary of the, 20, of the September 11 terror attacks. President Joe Biden has paid tribute to those who died and referenced a message sent at the time by Queen Elizabeth II. I remember a message sent to the American people from Queen Elizabeth. It was on September 11. Her ambassador read a prayer of service at St. Thomas Church in New York where she poignantly reminded us, quote, grief is the price we pay for love. Grief is the price we pay for love. Hundreds of people have taken to the streets of Chile to commemorate the 49th anniversary of the 1973 coup in which a dictatorship was imposed on the country. Left-wing parties with key political figures and members of the government paid homage to the statue of former President Salvador Allende outside the presidential palace. Participants laid flowers at his monument as well as outside the palace where he lived while president. Politician Carol Cariola described the anniversary as a painful one for Chile. Every year we come here to commemorate a very painful date for our country, which was the 1973 coup d'etat, and also to commemorate the role that President Salvador Allende has had in the history of our country, a president who was democratically elected, who was ratified by the people of Chile, and who unfortunately could not continue his mandate precisely. According to government figures during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, at least 3,095 people were killed and tens of thousands more were tortured or jailed for political reasons. Russia has accused Ukrainian forces of another attack on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Both sides continue to accuse each other of attacking the area around the plant. Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Igor Konashenkov says there are frequent attacks being launched. Since September 1, the territory of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and the city of Ernahoda have been subjected to artillery shelling by the armed forces of Ukraine 26 times, including on the territory of the nuclear power plant. At the same time, as a result of an aimed fire at the Transformer substation on September 6 and the power line on September 8, the city of Ernahoda was twice left without electricity. 
Ukraine's military says it's continuing to retake territory from the Russians in a counter-offensive in eastern Ukraine. The military is claiming to have taken over 3,000 square kilometers. Meanwhile, President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of targeting critical infrastructure in Ukraine's east in response, leaving large swathes of the of territory in total blackout. Ukraine's leader says that power was cut off completely throughout the entire Kharkiv and Donetsk regions, depriving people of light and heat. Outages have also been reported in several other areas near the front line. At least 11 people are thought to have died in a shipwreck off the coast of Tunisia, with 12 others still missing. Tunisia's Coast Guard rescued 14 people after the boat, which was carrying 37 migrants to Italy, sank on Tuesday. The state news agency says five more bodies were recovered on Saturday night, bringing the death death toll to 11. More than 1,000 migrants are thought to have died this year, attempting to cross the central Mediterranean. And to sport in rugby league, the South Sydney Rabbitohs have eliminated their arch rivals from this year's competition. They've beaten the Sydney Roosters 30 points to 14 in a brutal and spiteful game in Sydney that saw seven instances of players being seen binned, that is, having to temporarily leave the field for disciplinary infractions. The Rabbitohs will play the finals against the Cronulla Sharks next, next Saturday in Sydney. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, a mostly sunny day, 29 degrees, Perth, a shower or 2, 23, Adelaide, possible shower, 16, Melbourne, partly cloudy, 13, Hobart, showers, 10, Albury, Wodonga, cloudy, day, 12, Canberra, partly cloudy, 14, Wollongong, possible late shower, 19 degrees, Sydney, partly cloudy, 21, Newcastle, sunny, 21 degrees, Brisbane, mostly cloudy, 24, Townsville, sunny, 27, Cairns, mostly sunny, 30 degrees, Alice Springs, a mostly sunny day, 26 degrees, Darwin, a shower of 232 degrees, Torres Strait Islands, partly cloudy day, and a top of 31 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. Next in your program, we have a conversation with uh, Uncle Gary Williams, a conversation recorded ahead of his appearance at Antidote 2022 over the weekend, a festival of uh, ideas, art and change of Sydney Opera House. Among topics uh, discussed were how to revitalize endangered languages, and uh, Uncle Gary Williams shared his experience revitalizing Gumbangir language and also creating the Gumbangir language dictionary. Also coming up in the program, we have Frances Bell Parker talking about her artwork, Aboriginal artwork and storytelling, the first major art project to be presented on Sydney's Northern Beaches Coastal Walk. And from the newsroom, we look back at the proclamation of King Charles III as monarch of Australia amid military pomp and indigenous ceremony. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I'm Patron Tungandami and my guest is Kumbangir and Banjarong Man, Uncle Gary Williams, CEO of Morbai Aboriginal Language and Culture Cooperative. Uncle Gary is joining us on NITV Radio ahead of Sydney Opera House's Antidote 2022 Festival of Ideas, Art and Change. 
Among the many topics, Antidote 2022 will explore preserving endangered languages and the old rural statement from the heart. Uncle Gary Williams has worked on Gumbangit language reclamation for over 20 years and will take part in an Antidote 2022 event called First Languages First. Uncle Gary, welcome to NITV Radio. Thank you very much. This event is taking place in a particular context in, a, in the first year, actually, of UNESCO's Indigenous Languages Decade. And uh, we know that there are 7,000 languages uh, in use worldwide, but it's Indigenous languages that are rapidly falling out of use. Now, what does Australia need to do to preserve, revitalize and promote Indigenous languages? It certainly needs a lot more put into it in terms of funding, the pressure on uh, the non, non-strong languages, as you might say, is is immense, and um, it actually it has some momentum, but it needs to keep it up. If you know what I mean. Yeah. There are over 150 Indigenous languages actively maintained by community groups in Australia. And there's a growing movement to preserve, revitalize, and uh, promote Indigenous languages, including your own initiatives. Can you run us through some of your initiatives to revitalize languages? Well, our language here on the North Coast, Kumbanger, was the revitalization was the result of a group of pensioners, actually, who wanted to make sure that their grandchildren and great-grandchildren were able to have access to it. And this was in the mid-80s, about 85. They found a Catholic brother who was um, taking down their stories and, and they decided that he was the one to help them. So he had to be, had to um, learn how to be a linguist to do justice to their stories because they were language speakers. That's how it started. Yeah. They were in the next language area, actually. So uh, there's a backstory of how they were moved over there in the 1930s. But they kept their their language and their stories alive. Yeah. So in the end, they did bring it back to Gumbangil country, Nebakahevs, Atsik as it was then, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, bought the old church on the reserve here, the mission. Yeah. This is where we are at the moment. Yeah, and you yourself went on to really learn a lot from uh, the elders, do a lot of research, even going up to creating a radio program where you're speaking the language as well. We did have a radio program, but I do, uh, on ABC Radio, I do every Wednesday at this day, a little couple of minutes Yeah, with the local... They ring me up at 7.30 in the morning and uh, I give them a word for the week. It's fun. 
So, what kind of word would you uh, give on a weekly basis? Because uh, we have like a concept here at SBS where we try to learn names of places, how to say hello when I start my programs. I always great in um, community language, yeah. Siyama. Uh, what mm-hmm. words do you um, gift to your listeners? If there is something happening like uh, this season is the whale migration season, so we give them the word for whale. Yeah. And if it's winter, we you know the word for cold and all those type of things. If there are storms, then oh, anything that's happening and that people are interested in. It's not a language lesson as such, but uh, as anything that people might be interested in, you know. There are lots of people who I'm so surprised when people say, oh, I listen to you every week. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a lesson as such, but I, you can teach them any, anything that's happening. Yeah. So weather-wise, or if there are um, somebody has seen a, a bird or something, they were t- it's on the news, you know, the everyday speech type of thing. Yeah. And it's not just your language, your father's language, you also help actually revitalize up to seven different languages in the area. Yes, we are a regional language centre. It came about when ATSIC again, the region here, called the Many Rivers region, uh, put into the Endangered Language Fund around about 2004 uh, came to us and said, listen, if we get some money, you're a language centre, would you be able to use it for the languages in our region? So we said yes. The region goes from the Queensland border down to the Hawkesbury River. So there are seven languages in that region. Language is not just about the words that we use. It's about uh, mm. history. It's about culture. It's about connection to country. It's about so many different things that uh, you cover. It is, and that's one of the good things about uh, revitalization of language because you suddenly realize, by the way, we five of the languages didn't have dictionaries, so we got dictionaries for the, the, those five as well as our own, so Bunzang and Gumbanga had, lang- had dictionaries. And through work on dictionaries and everything, you suddenly find out a lot of the names of areas. You're quite surprised how many languages from uh, towns' names or, or mountains and things like that, uh, where they got their name from, that is. Yeah. So it's words and uh, their stories. So Tari, there's a word in that language for the fig tree, which is Dari. So that type of thing. Yeah, language places and connects meaning to country, place and people and uh, yeah. their stories. Now looking at my notes, I realize that there's something that's really important. You say that you learned from elders such as Tiger Buchanan and Uncle Charles Moran. Did you want to say a word or two about these elders? Only that um, we're very lucky that 
And me personally, I'm very lucky that they were still alive to be able to pass on some of those stuff because it's only later in life that Uncle Charles, we came across each other, his mother, on my father's side in the next language group, Bundjalung, and uh, and so we caught up with a whole lot of back stuff. So I'm, I'm just lucky that I was able to speak to all these people. None of the old people are now alive, but uh, so I count myself lucky. And it was through you that uh, knowledge was um, passed on and is being preserved for future generations. Mm. Uncle Gary, it's been a great pleasure talking to you and learning a lot about your work, Reviving Language. Can you give us a closing word? Only that uh, this decade of indigenous languages and it's worldwide, the, the conversation is basically the same about how to preserve revitalize and uh, what pressures that we face as I say it's it's only the accent that changes the words are basically the same and it's good to talk to other people who are in there yeah. that's the other thing as well you find out from them what they're going through and they're exchanging views yeah. I think that's the main thing Uncle Gary thanks again for taking the time to talk to us it's been an absolute pleasure learning about your work thank you NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Now, King Charles III has been officially confirmed as Australia's new head of state. As Sunila Wasti reports, his formal elevation in this country came on the same day the Prime Minister announced a one-off public holiday to mourn the death of Queen Elizabeth. Also, the ceremony took place amid military pomp and indigenous ceremony. <laughs> A new head of state confirmed with some old rituals. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese visited the monarch's representative, Governor-General David Hurley, at Government House in Canberra to recommend he proclaim the new sovereign's rule. The Prime Minister acutely aware of how historic this occasion was. We have a solemn responsibility uh, here today. Uh, It is... A great honour uh, for myself as Australia's 31st Prime Minister uh, to be uh, a part of uh, this. The Governor-General spelled it out more explicitly. Australia has known six monarchs from Federation to 8th of September last. Victoria, Edward VII, George V, Edward VIII, George VI, and for the last 70 years, Elizabeth II. Most Australians have not known a world without Queen Elizabeth II. Her passing is the end of an era. They then came to Parliament House to make it official with a formal proclamation ceremony. Hundreds of members of the public came to witness this once-in-a-generation event. Also present were the Executive Council, as well as members of the Federal Opposition, including Leader Peter Dutton. It's a time to stop and to pause and to reflect uh, on what is an incredible uh, lifelong contribution and a dedication of her life to to her people. (laughs) 
the ceremony brought different parts of Australia's story together. There were the soldiers marching, but also an Indigenous smoking ceremony. The service opened with a welcome to country from Ngunnawal elder Auntie Violet Sheridan, who paid her respects. No matter what your views, Queen Elizabeth lived a life of service and she was also a loving wife, mother, grandmother and great-grandmother. King Charles III takes over from his mother and we know he will be thoughtful in his rule. The Governor-General delivered the proclamation everyone had come to hear. Prince Charles Philip Arthur George to be King Charles III. By grace of God, King of Australia and his realms and territories. The ceremony ended with a royal 21-gun salute. Flags were at full mast for the ceremony. They've now returned to half-mast for the remaining period of mourning for Elizabeth II. There were similar ceremonies in each state and territory. The Prime Minister and Governor-General will now fly to London on Thursday for the late monarch's funeral. Mr Albanese has offered a lift to Pacific and New Zealand leaders to ensure they can be there. We want to make sure that for some of these states, like Tuvalu, uh, it is difficult uh, for them to get there. There's still restrictions on international travel. Mr Albanese and Mr Hurley will be back the following week for the one-off public holiday in Elizabeth's honour, a day of mourning on Thursday the 22nd of September. There will be a national memorial service at Parliament House in Canberra the next day, Friday the 23rd of September. Sunil Awosti, SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back in our conversation with uh, Francis Bell Parker, whose artwork, Aboriginal Art and Storytelling, is the first major public art project to be featured on the 36-kilometer Northern Beaches Coastal Walk in Sydney. Francis' winning concept designs celebrate Aboriginal stories of whale migration and the coast as a gathering spot and important life source of food, such as oysters. Francis Bell Parker came to prominence by winning the prestigious Black Prize in 2000 making her the youngest ever winner and the first Aboriginal recipient in the prize's history. We begin the conversation with Francis, highlighting the power of First Nations artists and their storytelling. That's our power that we possess as Aboriginal artists. We can tell those stories and get the attention from a wider audience that wouldn't normally be interested in learning about the underlying stories. Yeah, I must emphasize that uh, when you won that prize, you are not only the first Aboriginal recipient of uh, in the prize's history, but you're also the youngest ever to win that prize. So it just talks uh, a lot about your talent and your gift. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And I remember um, <laughs> when I got the phone call that I had won. So in 2000, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was 22 years ago. And the way that you entered artworks, which is vastly different to how it is today, you had to physically take the painting to a building to be judged before you were even selected as a finalist. And so I know a lot of the awards today, probably with the exception of the Archibald and those big ones, you could just submit a digital image or whatever. And then if you're a finalist, then you drop your artwork in to be judged. And I remember dropping it off I think some of the paint was still a bit wet and I asked my dad 
because I was living with my dad in Parramatta at the time. And I said, oh, Dad, um, can I have some money to pay for the fee to get the artwork delivered to where it needs to go? And he goes, oh, how much is it? I went, oh, $100. And then he scoffed at me. He goes, I'm not paying that. I'll drive you there. So he drove me, he drove me there to drop off my very small and modest painting. Um, <laughs> and I remember having that conversation with him. He goes, oh, what do you get if you win this thing? I went, oh, $10,000. Back then, that was a decent amount of money for any artist, especially struggling artists. Yeah. And then he had a little chuckle and he said, oh, well, if you win, we'll be coming home in a stretch limo. <laughs> and then it was a few days later or maybe a week later, I got the phone call and it said, oh, Francis, can you keep a secret? And so I hesitantly said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I can. <laughs> but knowing down, knowing well that, no, I can't keep a secret. And so as soon as I got off the phone, I went into the lounge room and just started cheering and going, guess what? I just won the Blake Prize. And so there was myself, my sister and my dad all jumping up and down in the lounge room. None of us could believe it and we had no idea of just how tough it is to actually win an art award. Even if you've been an artist for 20, 40 years, it's quite the feat to actually take something away. So we were amazed and I remember telling mum or telling dad, I said, okay, I don't want to tell mum, I just want a surprise her. And so by the time it came to um, the opening night at SH Irvine Gallery in the Rocks, so my mum had flown down to um, <laughs> to come to the opening, but she didn't know, so she was still clueless, and there was just me, my dad and my sister who did know. Yeah. And so when we were meeting the judges and stuff like that, they said to mum, oh, you must be the mother. But they weren't aware that she didn't know. And so mum just goes, well, I am a mother, but I'm not the mother. And then I think it wasn't until they called my name up to actually come up and receive the award that mum's looking around going, where's Frances? Where is she? <laughs> and so I always have a good little giggle of that. And then once I'm up there accepting the award, I just see the crowd part either side and it's my little mum walking up towards the stage to be up there and hold my hand whilst I accepted the award so that was a very memorable night for all of us. Wow that's historic I, I hope there's yeah. some footage of it you can show to uh, you know younger generations after you and uh, yeah keep it for posterity. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now, you said uh, upon winning this, uh, the possibility to have your artwork featured at uh, the Coastal Walk, that this is an amazing opportunity to be able to create public artwork that tells a deeper part of the coastline's story. Tell us about the story you're telling. You mentioned uh, some of the aspects of um, the shells that uh, you created. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, those stories. Through the um, community engagement sessions that we held, that was a great chance for me to actually speak with the community about what they actually wanted and what stories were important. And so I knew I had a few ideas in the back of my head, but it was by speaking to them that that kind of cemented the importance of why these particular stories were told. And so the oyster shells, they're based upon the story of middens and how um, it's kind of like that natural wasteland for where all our food scraps went. It's talking about not only the importance of middens and meeting places and family 
gatherings and stuff like that. We must also remember and always remember the stories that are underneath the surface. So they're not necessarily what are visible, but it's the stories that are contained within the land from thousands and thousands of years ago. There's also a series of plaques at Avalon and at Long Reef. And so it was interesting speaking to the community about these whale plaques. They kind of tell the story about the migration of the whales along the coastline, but there's also that underlying story of the importance of singing in the whales and how that was a cultural tradition um, all up and down the coast and how elders from communities, there would normally be like a few elders that had this special gift of being able to sing their songs in lingo, which in turn would, I guess, create a response from the whales in that they were able to sing them in whilst they were going up and down the coastline. And I think that's the beautiful story in itself. Naturally, being um, artwork that was to be on the northern beaches, I guess one of the things that was evident through speaking with the community was just how important the stories of whales are and um, how important they are to the people on the northern beaches. And it seemed as though pretty much everyone in those sessions had a story that they wanted to share about whales and why they were important to them. And I think um, on the northern beaches, it's also important to realise that there are quite a few Aboriginal people, but a lot of them are living off country. And I think there's only a handful of um, the traditional custodians over there. Yeah. And so, but they all work whilst respecting each other. And so I think that was a really lovely thing to witness. And it was just lovely to hear their feedback about what they wanted these whale plaques to um, represent. But there was also the demand that we want them everywhere. We don't just want them located in the one spot. We want them along the walk. And so I think that was quite reassuring to know that council had listened to those requests and with a few months left before the install, they managed to find a bit of extra funding to actually install another three of the plaques along the coastal walk at Long Reef. There's one large one and three smaller ones at Avalon, like near the surf club at yeah. Avalon Beach. Yeah. And long reef there's three of the smaller plaques and they're just lovely like they sit off to the side of the park i guess the way that they naturally age so they're made out of um cast bronze and so the salt water and stuff creates that kind of tarnished effect but i think they're just lovely how they age but also they're quite symbolic in the sense that they remind me of um, you know how you'd see plaques in the footpath in the city or whatever, like, or in memory of um, some of the first settlers yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's quite symbolic in that it's got that same kind of notion, but it has that sense of reclaiming um, the stories and telling the stories that are actually important to all Australians. And the fast Australians, uh, the traditional yeah. owners and custodians of the land. So their story wasn't told and now it's being retold. Their space reclaimed as well at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before I let you go, Francis, the mic is yours. A closing word, something you may not have mentioned that uh, you would like to bring to the attention of our listeners or 
I think my final words would be something along the lines of just being aware of the country that you're on and take that time, take the extra few minutes that it takes to listen to some of the um, First Nations people and hear their stories. And I think the most important thing is that everyone has a story and it's how we listen and respond to that story that makes all the difference to the person telling it. Frances Belpaka, it's been a great pleasure talking to you and thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Now another story from the newsroom. Well, a new initiative spearheaded by a group of young Australians is urging more people to stand up against street harassment. As research shows, women in minority groups are most at risk. The campaign urges all Australians to learn how to safely intervene if they see someone being harassed in public. Cassandra Bain reports. As a young woman of colour, Ravimbo Tagara says she's experienced harassment on the streets from strangers on many occasions. But it was one recent incident in particular that stands out. I was waiting for my tram to go back home and as I was waiting there was a man who was saying a lot of racial slurs and as I was about to cross the road to catch my tram, he spat in my hair. I felt very... First, I felt really disgusted, first of all, because I got my hair sped on. But at the same time, I felt really unsafe because I didn't know what this person was capable of doing. Despite being surrounded by other people, the 26-year-old says no one helped her. There were a lot of people around. It would have been great for somebody to intervene or to ask if I am okay after that. Ms Tagara is teaming up with other youth activists and high-profile Australians to encourage people to stand up to street harassment. In a new survey of 2,000 adults, 78% of Australian women say they've experienced sexual harassment in public places. That number rises to 90% for those in minority groups, including Indigenous and culturally diverse women, those who have a disability or identify as LGBTIQ+. It also found 70% of Australians have witnessed street harassment, but only 36% intervened. That's despite 8 in 10 women reporting that their experiences of street harassment were vastly improved when someone did speak up. Plan International Australia Chief Executive Suzanne Legina says unwanted sexual behaviour is not a compliment, it's a crime. We've just come to accept it as normal and we don't even blink an eye. So I think part of the campaign is to raise awareness of what it is, to give you the tools to do something about it. The organisation is offering free virtual training sessions on how to respond to harassment without further inflaming the situation. Model and media personality Maria Thuttle is urging Australians to get involved. You can get educated in five different strategies that we like to call the five Ds. It's distracting, it's delaying an incidence of harassment, it's documenting, delegating and being direct. And these things are going to enable you to safely intervene so that people don't have to experience this alone. She says she recently called out a group of men who harassed her in a car park in Melbourne. I decided to say something because I gauged in that moment that I felt safe to do so. And I told them point blank that they made me feel unsafe. 
and they apologized. Um, but the thing that I want to impress from this story is not every situation is the same, but what is consistent is that it is not the victim's responsibility to intervene or to put themselves at risk. Experts say while intervention is important, more needs to be done to address the root causes of the problem. Dr Bianca Philiborn is a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Melbourne. Ultimately, we need to be targeting the behaviours and the actions of men who are engaging um, in these behaviours and, and challenging those you know, so, social attitudes and norms that um, normalise and excuse uh, street harassment in the first place. So um, you know, that's really going to involve much longer term responses. So things like um, education in schools, um, community education and awareness uh, raising campaigns, for example. Cassandra Bain, SBS News. You're with NITV Radio. Last to the end of today's program, Bertrand Tungandami. I am Bertrand Tungandami, thanking you for tuning into NITV Radio today. I hope you enjoyed the program. Till next time, bye for now. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.